All right. While everybody is coming in, the only announcements that I'm familiar with, because wait a minute, maybe somebody left the announcement sheet up here. They did. Okay. Baptismal service, July 9th to 1 o'clock. Also, the announcement about Jeff Phipps and his trip as, um, needs to be updated. While the men were in the men's prayer meeting, within seconds, seconds, of Greg Freehoff praying for Jeff and that he would return safe, I felt my wrist buzz, and I had a text message from Jeff that he had landed safely. God answered that prayer. We concluded, Jim Meyer said, from now on, Greg is the man to go to for prayer. Instant answers. (laughs) That's right. So, Jeff is back and said he has a lot to uh, share with everybody about the trip. It was a great trip, so that was good. Jim and Phyllis got in last night from Ukraine, and if they fall asleep, that's understandable. You can. In Preston City, we had a long stick with a knob on the end just to take care of that, just bop people on the head if they fall asleep, but we know what jet lag's like. Okay, um, also need uh, some uh, uh, help with uh, packing up boxes and things for them to go to Kia. I think this week, you're, y'all are going to do the packing, right? Get the box all ready to go? Is that right? No? Everybody's confused. No, nope. left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing on this, so that's the question. Well, Connie said that uh, we would collect everything and that it would be that you all pack it and ship it. Okay, so we do need somebody to pack it and ship it. Okay, uh, so we need a volunteer to help help with that. Also, plan ahead. I keep getting questions. Yes, when I get a couple of more details settled, we will have a brochure ready to go on the Bible Museum trip next year. So um, just it will be by the end of the week, I hope. Uh, I had to take care of some family issues and do a family wedding this last Saturday in San Antonio, so that took me out of the loop for about four days, and and I'm back now, so hopefully I'll get some of that taken taken care of, and also plan for the Israel trip for next year. I have at least five or six new places or things to do that we've never done before on an Israel trip. I always try to add in some new things. So, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so each one of us can make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit which means that if necessary, we need to confess sin, and instantly we are forgiven. 
and cleanse not only of those sins, but of all unrighteousness and restore to fellowship. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful we can come together as a body of believers in freedom in this nation to worship you through the study of your word. Father, we recognize that 73 years ago today that there was tremendous battle engaged for the fortress of Europe to take back control of Europe from the Nazis, and Father, because of your grace, they prevailed. Our freedom was secured for another generation. Father, we continue to pray for this nation that the present generations would not take their freedom and liberty lightly, but that they might continue to treasure it and be willing to give the ultimate sacrifice to preserve that freedom. But to understand what it means and that real freedom is not a matter of political governments in this life, but is a matter of spiritual freedom that is grounded at the cross. For Jesus Christ gave us true liberty and freedom, freedom from the sin nature, freedom from the penalty of sin, and potential freedom from the power of sin, and ultimately freedom from presence of sin. Father, we pray for us that we might not take these truths lightly, but we may uh, continue to pray for our leaders, pray for our president, our representatives in Congress, pray for local as well as state leaders, and continue to pray that our government may recognize the foundation of our freedoms and that uh, there might be a turning in this country to you because ultimately the only hope resides in a spiritual foundation as we had at the beginning of this nation. And Father, we pray that if it's not in your plan for that to happen, that we might have the strength that we might have the foundation in truth to live, to persevere, to be a witness and a testimony no matter what may come. Because like the Apostle Paul says, we've known what it meant to abound and we know what it means to suffer loss, but we can do all things. That is, we can live in every circumstance through Christ who strengthens us. And he is our hope, our savior, our foundation, and he is our rock, And he is the one that gives us strength and stability. And we pray that we might not forget that. In Christ's name, amen. As I mentioned in our prayer, in my opening prayer, it was 73 years ago today on June the 6th, 1944, that the Allied forces under the command of uh, General uh, Dwight Eisenhower on the early dawn of June the 6th invaded Fortress Europe as it was identified at the time. If you've never had an opportunity to go and walk the beaches of Normandy, I encourage you to make that an opportunity. It is a remarkable and quite moving experience. 17 years ago, after going and having a remarkable time with Jim and Phyllis in Kazakhstan, teaching at a pastor's conference, Pam and I flew back to London and met some friends there who were from this church and although this church didn't exist at the time. And we went over 
to, to France and we went to Normandy and we went to the beaches and we walked on top of Pont du Hoc, the uh, cliff that the uh, army rangers had, had scaled to take out an artillery battery. We walked to the cemeteries and as we walked, the thought just kept occurring to me that this ought to be part of every high school senior's requirement for graduation from high school to come to understand that the freedom, the liberty that we have is not something to be taken for granted, that the lives that were given in order to uh, provide for that freedom, to prepare for that freedom, and, and to uh, con- make that continue and to perpetuate that freedom is quite important. And it is quite a significant thing to have done that. If you want to read about it, there's a trilogy on America's involvement in World War II called the Liberation Trilogy, written by Rick Atkinson. And if you read uh, the third volume, he's a remarkable, award-winning writer, and his research, and I've read a number of other things, older works such as uh, uh, The Longest Day, which I think many of you have either watched or you have read. Um, But Atkinson's book is recent. I think it's five or six years old. But he availed himself of a lot of of classified documents that had just become available in the last 10 years or so. And it is exceptionally well well written. This guy writes about the logistics, how many gallons of gasoline had to be used and the food and the tires and all this stuff that you you would think is just boring. And he writes it, and and it's spellbinding. And, And it's a miracle that we won that war. I mean, the mistakes that the Allies made over and over again, it will blow your mind. Only the sovereign will of God could have allowed that for us to succeed in the war. Uh, That we did was the grace of God. And so I encourage you, if you can't make it there, read a good book like that on what happened at D-Day, what was involved in that. But if possible, I know that... um, uh, there's some here who have grandchildren who may be approaching high school graduation. There's some who have children who may be a little young now, uh, but they will reach that age that to make a plan. That would be an a- exceptional uh, trip and extremely important for young people to understand that history and what was provided for us. But always pointing to the fact that the ultimate victory the ultimate military victory by the Lord of hosts over the true enemy of freedom occurred at the cross. Always bring back everything to the cross and the freedom we have in Christ. Speaking of Christ the Messiah, tonight we're going to wrap up some details in 1 Samuel 26, starting in verse 17. And if possible, and I don't think it will be, I would go on to chapter uh, uh, 28. We'll go through 26 and 27 uh, probably, but not skip to 29. I don't think we'll make it that far. Uh, Dealing with something that is being exhibited 
by David at this time. David is the anointed. The Hebrew word that we've studied many times is Mashiach, and he is a type of Christ. The word type means a a picture, an example, a foreshadowing. And we see through this period of his exile when he's being pursued uh, by, by Saul that there's a contrast continuously made by the author between Saul as his failure to fulfill his uh, messianic, as it were, his uh, responsibilities as a king of Israel, and David, who fulfills that. He is a, a perfect picture of the Messiah. There are several things that come together in this chapter, at the end of this chapter and in chapter 27, that exhibit for us those qualities and characteristics that uh, exhibit what the Messiah will be like as the true righteous king of Israel. By way of implication, though, there's something else that should be paid attention to, is that as the Messiah, the Messiah functions as a shepherd. He is pictured as the good shepherd, Uh, God is pictured as the shepherd of his people. Psalm 23, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. Being a shepherd is a leadership position. Now, within our lives, we have many different leadership positions. Some have small leadership positions, some have more significant leadership positions. But if you're a leader, if you're a mom, if you're a dad, if you're a grandparent, if you're a teacher, if you are leadership role at work, there's always a model of leadership that's presented whenever we talk about the role of the Messiah, because Jesus is the ultimate perfect leader. And so there's implications from this that are true for all of us. As we see depicted here, David is the uh, prototype, as it were, the human prototype of the Messiah. And he depicts that kind of leadership. He cares for his people. He is concerned about their safety. He is concerned about protecting them. He's concerned about providing for them. And he is a, a picture of, of leadership in that he is give, exemplifying what it means to trust and depend upon God in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of adversity. And so he portrays that uh, as an example uh, to his people. Now, what we have seen in the previous chapters is dealing with uh, Saul's pursuit of David. And we have seen that this began back in chapter uh, 18, 19 in there, where... um, I don't know what happened there. I don't know where it went. Where? Uh, Barb, we're having that keynote problem again. No, it no, it take too long to switch everything over. But it'll, you know, I got that rainbow. What I call the rainbow wheel of death. Here we go. So. We will start again. There we go. Okay, so starts off when he leaves uh, Saul, goes up to Ramah where he has a conference meeting with with um, Samuel, 
talking about the various issues, challenges that he's facing with the hostility of Saul. He escaped from there as Saul sent teams to pursue him. He escaped from there, uh, went down to Nob with a few of men accompanying him. He was uh, uh, given bread, the priestly bread from the uh, uh, from the temple service there, uh, or the tabernacle service. Uh, he fled from Nob, and then he hides out in Gath, which is a Philistine city, the hometown of Goliath. And as I pointed out, that's early in this process. I think what we see in this process, which took place, as I said last week, somewhere between five and ten years, is a growth period in David's spiritual life. Not unlike that of Abraham, where God is giving him various tests related to the promise that God has given him, a promise to be king, that he would live, he would survive, no matter what the opposition was. And so the test for David was related to that promise, just as Abraham's tests were all related to the promise of the seed. And early on, David, it focuses on the Lord, but it is the, uh, we see the, the struggles that he has, especially portrayed in Psalm 56, Psalm 34. Uh, when he goes to Gath, he's hiding out. He is faking in, fakes insanity after his cover is blown. And then he, uh, as a result of that, he's able to escape. We see the dynamics, the struggles that he has emotionally, uh, and it, the, the, the growth that takes place as he learns to trust God to protect him in the midst of those enemies. We went through those, those particular psalms. And then, but now we're going to see a second time that he goes to Gath. That's described in chapter 27. But in the midst of this, as we looked at that situation that occurred with Nabal and Abigail in chapter 25, that that sandwiched in those two episodes where David had the opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't. But he learns in that episode with Nabal, as he was going to take matters into his own hands and go kill Nabal, Abigail confronts him graciously in a subtle way, reminds him that he is God's anointed, that as he has fought the battles for the Lord, he needs to let the Lord fight his battles for him and not to not to take matters into his own hands, but to trust the Lord to handle Nabal. David truly repents, turns away from what he was going to do, and within just a matter of days, Nabal has a heart attack or stroke, and then dies. God took care of the problem. So he's learned the lesson. So David, in chapter 26, as I pointed out, is confident. There's a new confidence in the way he is approaching Saul uh, at this particular episode. Now, as we come to the end of this episode where Saul with his 3,000, surrounded by his 3,000 men, David and uh, Abishai have snuck into the camp, Abishai says, well, look, God's given you this opportunity. And I pointed out that that's, um, uh, that's like many of us. We say, oh, God gave us this opportunity. It must be God's will. So, look, I'm parked in front of an ice cream store. must be God's will for me to have ice cream. I've used that rationale once or twice. But David says, no, it's not my responsibility to take the life of God's anointed. And so he uh, takes the spear, takes Saul's water jug, goes to the closest ridge line to get outside of the camp, cries out, has an interchange with Abner, and then Saul interrupts. 
And Saul hears his voice. This is where we're going to pick up tonight. We, I summarized this rather quickly last time. I want to pick up a couple of things I, I didn't cover last time. Saul heard David's voice. He knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? Notice how he always is after. It's sort of like when he gets caught, he is very kind to David. Uh, don't trust him. David says it's my voice, and he's always respectful to Saul as the king, God's anointed. It's my voice, my Lord, O king. And David says, why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? Notice he's reminding him that David is his servant. So why are you pursuing your servant? What have I done? What evil is in my hand? I haven't done anything worthy of your hostility. Sixteen times Saul has tried to kill David. And David has uh, gotten away every time. But David would, it seemed, have every right to defend himself and to, to kill Saul. And then he offers this plea. Interesting verse, verse 19. Now, therefore, please let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. It's a long verse, so let's break it down a a little bit. The first statement he says is a request to Saul. He says, Now therefore, please let the Lord my king hear the words of his servant. Listen to what I have to say here. He's going to set up a a conditional, using conditional clauses, he's going to set up a hypothetical uh, scenario, two options. And so in this slide, I've tried to break those in. You have the first condition. If the Lord has stirred you up, in other words, if this situation is from the Lord, then let him accept an offering. And we'll look at that, break that down in just a minute. The second scenario, either this is from God, then let God accept an offering and forgive me. Or secondly, if it's from men, then let God bring judgment upon those men. And then he, the last clause, the four is an explanation as to why he is making such a strong statement of condemnation and judgment on those men. For that should be translated as because he's giving the reason for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord saying go serve other gods so we have uh, have to look at these two conditional clauses that are set up we'll do that first and then look at the explanation next he sets up these two Conditions. It's one or the other. Either this is from the Lord or it's from men, one or the other. The first statement, he says, if the Lord has stirred you up against me. And the word that he uses there in the Hebrew for stirring them up is a word suit. And it's in the hiphel stem, which is to cause, has the idea of causing something to happen. And if the Lord has caused you to do this, and the word has a range of meanings, has the idea of enticing someone to do something or drawing someone away to do something or a little more positively urged. And it's probably that idea here. If the Lord has urged you or directed you 
against me. Then, that's your opening part of the condition, you call it a protesis in grammar. And then the uh, apodesis is the second part. If this is what God has done, then let him accept an offering. Now that word accept is a is a significant word. It doesn't really mean accept. It's an idiomatic phrase. And the word there is the word ravach, which means to smell. Now, it's related, it's a verb, but it's related to the noun ruach, which is translated spirit in most places, and it, and, but it has a broader range of meanings, just like in the New Testament word for pneuma, it means the wind or breath, and what happens when you're uh, walking along somewhere and there's a bit of a breeze, and all of a sudden you smell somebody's backyard barbecue cooking, and you have that sweet savor of the steaks or the hamburgers cooking on the grill. And that's the idea of the verb. It means to smell. And then it's followed by the object of the verb, which is mincha, which means an offering or a sacrifice. And so the idea is uh, the imagery here is that of God smelling a sweet savor offering. And so it should be uh, translated to catch the thrust of this. Uh, the first part, if the Lord has incited or drawn you away or urged you against me, then let him smell the soothing aroma of an offering. And that would mean that David would offer up sacrifices for sin and then God would smell the sweet savor offering and be pleased and forgive him or cleanse him. And so that's the first condition. That's what um, David is saying here, is let God smell the pleasing sense, scent of an offering and treat me in grace. So that's that's the idea there. If this is from the Lord and he is truly brought you against me as discipline against me, then may he smell the offering um, uh, and forgive me. And then on the other hand, he says, uh, says to them, but if it is the children of men, that is, if it is, the, literally it's the sons of Adam, if it is the children of men, or just if it's from man, May they be cursed before the Lord. And the word there for cursed is the word arur, which means um, may they be has the idea of being judged or condemned by God. So he is putting the situation in God's hands. If this is my fault, then may God forgive me and treat me in grace as I bring sacrifices to him. If this is from men, may God judge them harshly. Why? Why does he make that statement? Well, at the end of the verse, we have this statement this of explanation. He says, For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, what we learn from this, first of all, is this word translated inheritance is the Hebrew word nah. Nachala, which means the inheritance. And as we've learned in the past, inheritance doesn't mean that which you receive uh, when somebody dies in a 
from a uh, uh, stated in a will, but it has the idea of possession, and it's used that way throughout the the Torah, referring to the land as the possession uh, that God is giving to Israel, that they will go in and uh, possess the land. But the word also describes Israel, who has been bought with a price. They have been redeemed by God so that he is theirs. He is his firstborn, and they are also his inheritance. And I think both ideas are present here because what is happening is the enemies are driving David out of the land, the land of promise, the land of blessing, and he is not going to be able to enjoy the blessing of the people, of God's people in Israel or of the land. And so... He recognizes at this point that the only way to survive Saul's constant attacks is to to leave the land. Now, we see him make that decision at the beginning of the next chapter, but here he he already recognizes that's that's what's taking place. And then he says, uh, for essentially what they are saying is, go serve other gods. Now, in the Old Testament, in, among pagans, it was a common idea in the various pagan religions that a god could only be worshipped on his own soil. And if you remember the episode in 2 Kings 5, uh, it's identified in 517, Naaman the Syrian is um, uh, comes down to, to Israel. He comes to Elisha, who heals him of his leprosy, But then he says something that reveals that he still has this human viewpoint ideas in his uh, his thinking. And he says, give me, I think it's two donkey loads of soil. But we'll bring it into uh, our modern times, two truckloads of soil. And that he can take back to Damascus with him that he can put down and he can pray to God on the soil of Israel. It's this idea that that is in paganism that a, a god is restricted to his own land or his own country and can only uh, function with that. So uh, that's sort of the idea that the unbelievers had, the pagans have, is that if you're not in your land, you can't worship your God. If you go to the land of the Philistines, you have to serve their gods. If you go to Egypt, you have to serve their gods, that these gods are territorial. And so, in essence, David is saying, that's what they want me to do, is leave and go serve other gods, go live in some other country. And in conclusion, he says, so now, this is his plea to Saul, do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. Don't let me be killed. Don't let me be uh, murdered. The shedding of blood, as we've studied many times before, is an idiom for a violent form of death, usually uh, related to murder. This was the language that we find in Genesis 9 in the, in the uh, covenant with Noah, when God said, uh, and this is the basis for capital punishment, if anyone sheds man's blood, that's that idea here, letting blood fall to the ground, if anyone sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. That's capital punishment. And so that is authorized in the covenant with Noah, along with eating meat. 
and along with the promise that God would not destroy the earth by water again. And so the sign of that covenant is a rainbow. So when you see a rainbow, you need to think of three things. Number one, God's promise to never destroy the earth by water again. Number two, the importance to eat steak, eat meat. And third, capital punishment. And that as long as you see that rainbow, those three things are true. So that's what David is re- referencing here is a violent death by using this this uh, imagery, this idiom, do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea. Now, there's an interesting little wordplay here. Samuel is filled with these wordplays, and I've probably missed most of them because my Hebrew isn't always that adept. But this is a um, the word here for uh, uh, a partridge is a Hebrew word, koreh, which is from the Hebrew word kara, which means to call. And they refer to a partridge as a, as a calling bird. And in verse 13, David is standing, or verse 14, David is standing on the mountain, and he is calling to Saul. And when... Uh, uh, Abner replies in verse 14, he says, Who are you, O caller? And so he uses his term for the partridge, uh, the caller in the mountains. And so there's this, this, uh, this paranomasia, which means a pun, that goes on in the text to just highlight this, that he's the caller, and that Saul is the one who is uh, come out uh, like someone seeking a calling bird. And, he, and David says he's nothing but a flea. He's not, not important. And then, as I pointed out last time, Saul has his remorse. It's emotional. He's sorry he got caught. He's not sorry he wasn't really seeking David because all along, every time something like this happens, he has emotional remorse but he doesn't change. He doesn't turn back to God. And so in verse 21, Saul says, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. In other words, he's admitting once again that David really doesn't have it in for him. And so he says, come back. And he says, I've played the fool and erred exceedingly. But David is smart. David has gained great wisdom, and he doesn't believe anything that Saul says. And so David is not going to put himself into Saul's, um, Saul's hand. And in verse 22, David says, and here we ha- we're going to have another play on words, for the word here for return is the Hebrew word shuv. Now, we've studied that in the context of Israel turning back to God, and so it's a basic word for turning. It's related to repentance and turning to God, and, uh, and so it's, uh, we just remember that word shuv. It shows up in the next, uh, uh, next verse. Uh, David answers and says, Here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. Verse 23, may the Lord repay every man for his righteousness. Well, that word for repay isn't repay. 
It is shuv. It is return. Saul says, you return to me. And David says, may the Lord return to each man what he deserves. So he turns that back on Saul. May the Lord repay or return every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And so here we have David asserting something similar to what uh, Paul asserts in Galatians 5, where Paul says, uh, uh, we will reap what we sow. And it's that same principle that there will be a re, re, there will be an accounting, and there will be a uh, return of our recompense from God's justice for how one acts. And so he's saying, may the Lord repay or return every man for his righteousness. If you don't have righteousness, may God uh, bring judgment upon you. If you do, uh, he won't. And may man, uh, may the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. And he's asserting his own righteousness and his own faithfulness in that process. And that is a picture of, of the Messiah, that the Messiah is one who will be uh, a faithful and righteous leader. And David is uh, asserting this by implication, that he is righteous, he's faithful, and that God will bless him but Saul will be brought under judgment, which is about to happen. And this, by the way, is the last conversation that David has with Saul, and he will not see Saul again, and he will not uh, have a conversation uh, with Saul again. What's interesting is that these, how these two words show up in the Psalms. For example, in Psalm uh, 40, verse 10, David says, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. Notice there's a close relationship between righteousness and faithfulness in this verse. We've studied the parallelism uh, that you find in the Psalms, and you have uh, synonymous parallelism where the first line is mirrored by by synonyms in the second line, and this is um, then you have something called emblematic uh, parallelism where the second line expands on the idea of the first. And so in the first line, he's saying, I haven't kept quiet about your righteousness, basically. I haven't hidden it within my heart or within my mind. And then he expands on that, and he says, I've declared your faithfulness and your salvation. So faithfulness and salvation are connected to explain righteousness. And so there's a connection here between the absolute standard of God's righteousness and how that is displayed towards his people and that it is displayed through his faithfulness or his consistency, his dependability, the root word for faithfulness is the word, the Hebrew word emuna, and the root of emuna is amen. Amen is a word that has the connotation of belief and certainty, but there are some forms of that word where it is used with that sense of stability. It is used of the foundation stone under holding up or grounding 
the pillars of the temple. And so it has that idea of something that is stable, something that is certain, something that is un- immovable. And so that's what what faithfulness is. It is dependability. It is something that is rock solid and won't be shaken. So uh, David expands on how he has not hidden his righteousness. He says, I've declared your faithfulness and salvation. I've not concealed your loving kindness and your truth. Now notice this connection because it shows up in the Psalms now and again where you have a connection between righteousness, God's righteousness, and his faithfulness, his dependability, and his chesed, his loving kindness, his mercy, his faithful, loyal love. It is uh, that which doesn't isn't shaken. He's he's faithful to his covenant. He is he has covenanted to always love Israel. And he is never going to be shaken in that. So he is he is reliable. And his truth, therefore, is reliable and he's faithful to his truth. Psalm 143 1 uh, uses faithfulness and righteousness in the same context again, where David is pleading with God, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness, answer me. How many times do we pray to God that he would answer us because of what his word says? We are basically pleading with God. We're claiming a promise, and we're saying to God, be faithful to your promise. Be faithful to me. I'm claiming this promise that you would fulfill this in in my life. So faithfulness, pleading with God, using his uh his essence as a basis for our rationale for our our petitions to God. And he says, give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness, answer me, and in your righteousness. So righteousness and faithfulness go together in the essence and the character of God. Then we come to um, the last part of verse 24. says, Indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord. See, I valued your life, and I did not take it. And, he said, and David is saying, so let my life be valued in the Lord, and let him deliver me from all tribulation. Now, this is really an interesting word. It's the word sarah which means distress or troubles. It has a range of meaning, adversity, difficulties, hardship. And as I was looking through its use in the Psalms, it shows up some 22 times in in the Psalms. And one of the places where it shows up twice is in Psalm 25. You might want to hold your place here for just a minute, and let's turn over to Psalm 25. I'm not going to go through the whole psalm tonight, but I just want to look at the last part of the psalm, starting starting in verse uh, 15. Starting in verse 15. And actually, verse 15, although in my King James Version, it has a break between 15 and 16, 15 through 21 express his petition, his prayer. And we'll look at that. And then 22 breaks with that. In fact, the whole psalm in the Hebrew is an acrostic. 
An acrostic is a psalm where each verse begins with the next letter in the alphabet. So if we're writing it in English, the first word in the first verse would be an A. First um, word in the second verse would start with a B. The third verse, the first word would start with a C and so on. In Hebrew, it's done, of course, with the Hebrew alphabet. So it follows an acrostic until you get down to verse 22. Verse 22 breaks the pattern. It's not part of the acrostic, and there's something else about it as well. When you get to verse 22, he shifts from something personal where he has been pleading with God. For example, in verse 1, he says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Who's the, who's the focal point here? It's obviously God, but the person who's pleading is me. It's I. It's first person singular pronouns. And you see this develop uh, all through the psalm until you get to verse 22. Verse 22, it's not redeem me, O God, out of all my troubles. It's redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. And what we see pictured here at the beginning, it just says it's a psalm of David. It doesn't tell us what the circumstance or the situation was. But I think that David makes a transition at the end, having laid this down on terms of a personal basis, he transitions to just, he's basically saying, just as this is true for me, it's true for Israel. He identifies himself with God's purpose and direction for Israel so that he transitions from God redeeming him and listening to his prayers to doing that for the nation. That is David functioning in this role as as a prototype of the Messiah, as the anointed king, foreshadowing uh, Jesus who himself stands for the nation Israel as the ultimate um, uh, as the ultimate Messiah, as the one toward whom all these other anointed ones point. And so that is, that's the structure, the flow of, the, um, of this psalm. And it is David's uh, crying out to God to deliver him. It is a lament psalm. And the petition, though, is really stated starting in verse, verse 15. So that 15 through 21 are one unit. And then you get to verse 21 as the, uh, 22 rather, as the close. He lays the foundation in verse 15. He says, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Now, what is he saying here? What he's saying here when he uses this idiom, my eyes, is he's relating that back uh, to verse 1. He's saying, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And so he is, he is um, repeating that idea that that um, he's trusting in the Lord, he's looking to the Lord for sustenance and for uh, protection. And the idea of eyes is an idiom that's not strange to the Scripture. In Ephesians 1.18, Paul talks about the eyes of our understanding. And so the eyes of our soul, the eyes of our understanding, 
um, my eyes looking towards the Lord is talking about a mental focus, a men- mentally looking to the Lord, concentrating on Him. And so he re- uses this to refer to his own spiritual focus and commitment. And he is waiting upon the Lord for uh, guidance and instruction and for, uh, for deliverance. He says, the Lord shall pluck my feet out of the net. The picture here is of an animal who has been caught in a trap, who has been caught in a snare, and that God is the one who is going to rescue him from being captured, from being caught in that snare. And then he expresses his petition in verses 16 through 20. Now, I've done a couple of things on the slide to bring out some points. I've underlined the key verbs. And the ones that I've underlined are, um, are all imperatives. Now, that's not an com- imperative of command. They are an imperative of request. And that is, if you are a servant and you're asking a favor of your master, you would still use an imperative, but it's called an imperative of request. It's not, you're not commanding it. So you don't, in, in the naming claimant movement, uh, they misunderstand this. They think that these imperatives in prayer are people telling God what to do, commanding God, and they don't understand that you have uh, imperatives were also used from someone who was a servant requesting a favor of the master. And so this is what you have here. It is an expression of David pleading with God to intercede in terms of his circumstances. He says, turn yourself to me and have mercy on me. Why? Because and the blue words that I've highlighted there are the synonyms for tsarat. Tsarat is the word that's used for tribulation. David calling upon God will deliver me from my tribulation there at the end of of First uh, Samuel uh, 20. 26, he says, uh, that's the word here, but all of these are synonymous parallels. He says, I'm desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Notice he's not focusing on the external cause of the troubles, but his internal response, which is, which is worry, anxiety, fear. These have caused internal distress. He says, bring me out of my distresses. That's another word for those external troubles, the external adversity. And so he calls God, turn to me, have mercy on me, uh, bring me out of my distresses, look on my affliction. And that really means pay attention to me, God. You know, don't get distracted with what's going on and and all the conspiracy theories with the Russians and Trump in Washington, D.C. Don't get all concerned about uh, distracted by what's going on with ISIS and the terrorists. Pay attention to me. I got real problems in my life. Look on my affliction and my pain. See, sometimes as Christians, when we look at our own problems, we don't want to be whiny babies. We don't want to whine to God and and look, I got all these problems. You need to take care of them. Well, God's there. He wants us to whine to him. We're not to whine to anybody else. We're to whine to God. 
And that's what David is saying. He's identifying that I'm going through all of this difficulty. Pay attention to me. I'm going through pain. He's not saying, well, you know, I've got to have a stiff upper lip because I'm a Christian and I'm trusting God. David's expressing his trust to God by identifying the problem, the, the, the realities in his life, the heartaches, the difficulties, the worries, the anxieties. He's telling God about them because God's the one who can solve them. Nobody else can says, look on my affliction and pain. And he says, and forgive all my sins. He recognizes that if sin is the cause of this distress, then he asks God to forgive him of those sins. But if sins are not the cause, then of course he's pleading with God to deliver him. He says, consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with a cruel hatred. So you can... We can imagine that this was a psalm that possibly David wrote during this particular time. But there are other times in his life when he's got enemies after him. He's got his son uh, Absalom who rebels against him much later in life. David, like any powerful king, had a number of, of enemies, both personal and national. But he it very well could have been written during the time when he is being pursued by Saul. Consider my enemies, for they are many. They hate me with a cruel hatred. Keep my soul, which is the Hebrew word shamar, which means to guard it, to protect it, to watch over it. So he's pleading for protection from God. Keep my soul and deliver me, not Saul. Same word that's used for deliverance in, in 1 Samuel uh, 26. Deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. See, I've lost the lost the verse there. Dropped off the end of the end end of the verse there. Twenty. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. And then the next verse, verse twenty one, which dropped off also. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. And he uses the same word for wait there that we have in Isaiah uh, forty thirty one. They that wait upon the Lord, kavah. Those who rest, relax, wait patiently for God to solve the problem. And so he waits for God. And then he, that's the conclusion of the psalm. And then he interjects this, redeem Israel, which is a Hebrew word that in many contexts it has the idea of paying a ransom price. Other contexts it doesn't view the idea of the ransom as much as it does the release from bondage or granting freedom. Uh, some have suggested that they're two separate ideas, but they're related. One, it's like grammatically you have a perfect tense, which is completed action. Sometimes it emphasizes the present results of the completed action. Sometimes it emphasizes the completedness of the action in past time. But both are present. It's still completed action. Well, this is the same idea. Redemption refers to the payment of a price to grant freedom. Sometimes it's emphasizing the freedom part. Other times it's emphasizing the payment of the price aspect. But they're both part of the meaning of that, of that word. So he's calling upon God to deliver Israel, the nation, out of all their troubles. That's the same word that he uses there at the end of of, of 1 Samuel 20, uh, 26, where he prays that God would deliver me out of all 
tribulation, tsara. And then he goes on to say, uh, then we have the last comment from Saul to David, verse 25, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things, and also still, uh, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things, and also still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. So when he says, you shall both, he's saying you're going to do two things. You're going to do great things, and you're going to prevail. And that brings us to the conclusion of chapter 26, but not to this event. So let's start with, um, well, we'll get on to what his reaction is in verse um, in chapter 27 next time. I want to look at 27, 1 down through 28.2, that's sort of what happens as a background to what the next episode is in 29 and 30. And all of that fits together as we work our way through uh, David's, David's situation. In verse 1, he says to himself, this, says, this indicates to us that David is thinking through his situation. He says in his heart, which means in his thinking, in his mind, he's talking to himself, heart on a few and rare occasions refers to the emotion. Usually it refers to that which is at the core of a person's being, and most often they're thinking, the thinking part of the soul. And so David says in his heart, in his thinking, in his uh, core of his being, he's reasoning, he's thinking through, now what do I do? And he says, if I stay here, Saul's going to eventually kill me. And I've got, he's got 600 men with him, plus wives and children. So he has probably an excess of 1,000 people. That's a lot of logistics, and that's a lot of people and families to be responsible for when Saul has an army of 3,000 chasing him again and again and again, which is what's been going on. And he recognizes that nothing's going to happen, that despite Saul's protest to the opposite, Saul is still going to pursue him. And so he realizes out of wisdom that the only solution is that he needs to get out of the land. He he recognized that as he was talking with Saul, that these people are running him out of the inheritance of the Lord. And so he realizes the only place to go is with the Philistines. And we saw that in chapter 21, but there are some important distinctions between that situation and this situation. And as we read through chapter 27, we're also going to see that David seems somewhat deceptive. It seems that uh, several things go on here that... um, may not be real ethical, but maybe they should be. So we'll talk about that. We'll come back and look at chapter uh, 27 and go on to 29 and 30 as one unit, probably take two or three weeks to go through that. And then we'll come back and look at the end of Saul's life, looking at chapter uh, 28 and then chapter 31 as we conclude the book. That'll probably take three or four weeks. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study, to be reminded of David's character and the example that he is as uh, of the Messiah, the one who will come as the good shepherd, who will provide for the sheep, take care of the sheep, 
as he exemplifies the trust in you, that he recognizes that you and you alone are the one who delivers us from all our tribulations, all the difficulties and hardships in life. You are the source, as he says at the end of uh, Psalm 25, you are the one who redeems us. You redeemed Israel, and you will redeem us from our tribulations. You are the only one that we can count on to deliver us from the adversity and the difficulties of living in this fallen world. Father, we pray that we might be reminded that as David is exemplifying this trust in you, it pictures the perfect trust that Jesus Christ had in you, even as he went to the cross to die for our sins. And that as David and the Lord exemplified this trust for us, that we are to uh, follow that pattern in our own lives, trusting you exclusively to deliver us from all of our tribulation. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.